presence with singing. Song and all of these songs that we have sung today, we're thankful for the promise that you have made to us in Christ for the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives to confirm those promises. And what confidence that we have that there is nothing that man can do, there is nothing that hell can do to stop what you have set in order to pluck us from your hand as you hold us in Christ. We thank you for this confidence. We rejoice together in it. And we rejoice that our confidence does not rely upon ourselves. And I pray, Lord, as we come before the text of Scripture today, that you would help us to discern that truth. I pray that you would hedge out any thought that we might attempt to please you in our own strength. We recognize that Christ is our righteousness. We come to you poor in spirit and needy of your grace. And pray that as we consider your call upon us that we would recognize what we have just sung. That we stand in Christ. We stand in His righteousness. And we can pursue nothing in our own strength, in our own righteousness. For those who know not Christ and are striving to be good people in their own righteousness and to please you by their own efforts for those who do not even care to attempt. I pray that you'd bring conviction today and change and by your grace that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. May we labor in the word and feed upon it for as we have sung and as you have said, our Lord, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Feed us in our souls today. Those grieving, feed them. Those rejoicing, feed them. Those who are dull to the things of God, will you put before us food that is tasty and good? And may we dine on the truth of your word and be fed in our souls together here in this time. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> From birth, we are fully alive to self. As infants, we face pain and hunger and cold, and we let everyone around us know that that's how we're feeling. From our earliest days, we begin to hone the skills of self-promotion and self-protection and self-interest and achievement. And in these self-interested pursuits, we soon learn that there are two weapons that we must hold on to and begin to use. The first is truth, and the second is justice. Truth, we learn fairly soon, can either hurt us or it can help us. Truth can be an ally in our defense, and so we insist upon the truth. But there are other times that truth is inconvenient. It becomes an irritant. It's in the way. And yes, there are those times when truth is an enemy. For the truth to be known, for the truth to be spoken, self is harmed. 
and justice we find is a sword of protection against people who would attack us or hinder us. In our self-orientation, fairly quickly, we come to terms with truth and justice. Alive to self, we learn to manipulate the truth and we learn to apply justice to our own advantage. And then Jesus shows up and rewrites the playbook. And here we are again in the Sermon of the Mount. The history of mankind is in part a story of how people and nations and civilizations handle truth and justice. Think about it in your mind as you put together the history of the world, all that you can grasp. Truth and justice are at the core of so many of the disputes and so many of the movements of our world. And our personal histories as the followers of Christ also hinge on how we learn to relate to truth and justice as men and women whose hearts Christ has purified. So as we return to this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 today where Christ addresses truth and justice, He addresses it for hearts that He has made and is making here in this context new. His treatment of truth and justice is by no means comprehensive in this passage before us, beginning at verse 33. It's representative, it's illustrative, but it's very significant. And in verses 33 to 42, he teaches us how we must learn to think about these matters in the mix of everyday life. So it's not really very theoretical, but he's touching a vein here that helps us understand in our self-promoting, self-oriented way of life how to consider, how to think about truth and justice. Our bent to manipulate the truth and our bent to use justice with exacting severity to protect ourselves. We remember as we come into Matthew 5 once again today, the context that Jesus combats hypocritical teaching on the part of the Jewish leaders and to the Jewish teachers of the law who manipulated the law of God to serve their self-centered purposes. They spoke of the Word of God, they taught it, they said that they were obeying it, but always twisting and turning it to their own selfish advantage. Fully alive to self, they learn to manipulate truth and to exact justice, to promote self, to protect self, and to achieve selfish ends. Jesus turns their world upside down, and he turns our world upside down. He writes, in a sense, a new playbook, not by looking at it comprehensively, but just at touching down in some practical matters relating to truth and justice. <clears throat> verse 33 through 37 do not manipulate the truth for selfish advantage this is what Jesus teaches do not manipulate the truth for selfish advantage verse 33 again you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, capital K. And do not take an oath by your head, your life, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil." Do not manipulate the truth for selfish advantage, Christ teaches us. Verse 33, he speaks of swearing. We hear of swearing, a couple different ideas come to mind. Not dirty words here, but swearing an oath. Thanks for letting me borrow this book. I swear to God I'll bring it back to you. That's what he's talking about. Not a dirty word, but I swear to God I'll bring this book back to you. When you say something like that, the Jewish rabbis insisted, you must follow through. Sounds reasonable enough. Of course, we should follow through. We should keep the vows that we make. This is all that Jesus is saying. But he's saying more in the context of that day. And it's significant that we consider the context of that day as we understand the bite to what he is saying here in verse 33. The Jewish rabbis, the teachers of the law, had a fine-tuned and elaborate system of rules that determined how binding an oath was. I swear by the temple's altar that I will... What do you think? Binding or not binding? That is the question. Did this oath obligate one to keep it? I swear by the temple's altar? Rabbis? No. Not that one. That doesn't qualify as a binding oath. You can kind of hedge on that one. I swear by the lamb sacrificed on the temple's altar that I will. How about that oath? Binding or not binding? That one's binding. By the altar, no. By the lamb on the altar, yes. That one you must keep. This is all in writing. Pages upon pages of Jewish literature that describes these kinds of conversations. I swear by Jerusalem that I will, binding or not binding, not binding. I swear toward Jerusalem, binding. Kind of crazy, isn't it? And it drove Jesus crazy. He hated this. If, if you think my words are too strong that he hated it, you can read Matthew 23 and that'll make the case. He despised it. On and on this foolishness went, page after page of rabbinical rules regarding which oaths you had to keep and which ones you did not have to keep. Jesus knew that the rabbis were manipulating the truth simply to serve their own selfish interests. Self was at the heart of it, and oaths helped you, either by not speaking the truth, or by speaking it. So they justified this following. You might say, Why? this is nuts. Why are they doing this? Well, here's their thinking. There's always something behind it. Here's their thinking. If you swear in God's name, we hallow and we revere the name of God. And so if you swear in God's name, you take an oath in God's name, make a vow... You have to keep it or you will blaspheme God. And they were right on some level. They are saying, someone is saying, by the name of God, I promise that I will do this 
And if you're, you're calling God to witness, to then break that oath is in a sense to say God doesn't matter. He's not there. So if you swear by the name of God and don't keep it, you blaspheme God's name. But then they went crazy arguing that this or that word could be used in exchange for God. And some of those exchanges were binding. You're going to blaspheme God if you break this oath. And others were not. They were like little children crossing their fingers behind their backs when they were stating a falsehood. Jesus certainly agreed that it is important to perform what you swear you will perform. But he rejects the notion that you are free to insert loopholes in your vow by avoiding God's name. This is where he directly opposes the teaching of the day. Verse 34, then, he says, this is what you have heard, this is what has been taught, and indeed, there is some Old Testament background to these, this statement. But the way it was being manipulated, this is what you've heard, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath by heaven, by the throne of God, verse 35, by the earth, or by Jerusalem. And the explanation that he gives to each of these ideas, with the background again understood, these were non-binding oaths. What Jesus does here is he exposes the folly of this thinking. You think you can swear by Jerusalem and break your vow. You think you can swear toward Jerusalem and cannot. Jerusalem belongs to God. There's not one inch of this universe that does not belong to His sovereign authority, including your own head and the hairs that may or may not grow on it and may or may not keep their color. This is ridiculous thinking is what he's saying here. All of these binding and non-binding rules by heaven, by the throne of God and the like, they, uh, or by heaven which is the throne of God, or by earth which is His footstool, or by Jerusalem which is His city, all of these things are just foolishness. And again, verse 36, taking the oath by your own head is saying, in a sense, by your own life. Your life belongs to Him. So it is folly to think. And here it is, and we can take this in a lot different directions. It is folly to think you can remove God from the equation ever. We never remove him from the equation. All of this, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All of this comes from evil. Or it could be translated from the evil one. Whether it's Satan or evil in general, it's sourced in evil. It's not sourced in God who cannot lie. Simply say, verse 37, yes or no. Or the Greek, let the word of you be yes, yes, or no, no. That is, truth is the expression of God's nature. And those who know God, who love the truth, speak the truth, and actively align their lives with the truth. The truth is not to be manipulated for selfish purposes. The truth is to be spoken as a witness to the presence of God in every situation. And so for such people who see this truth, there is no need for an oath. 
And there is no need for me to explain just how unusual such people are. Recently, the Institute of Child Study at Toronto University surveyed 1,200 children ages 2 to 17. The Institute found that 20% of two-year-olds had gained the capacity of lying. 20% of two-year-olds could lie. They could marshal the deal. Four-year-olds, 90%. 90% of the four-year-olds surveyed were able to lie. Let me tell you, that 20% to 90% in two years wasn't because of some parental course where they were taught to lie. It's innate in us. What I found as fascinating as this statistic was the researchers' take on it. 90% of four-year-olds have mastered the ability to lie. Their take was this. Don't worry, lying is a developmental function of the brain as it learns that people hold differing perspectives and have competitive motives and interests. So as your children are lying... They're learning, they're demonstrating that they recognize people don't agree with one another. Well, it's certainly good that children learn that people don't all agree with one another, but I would suggest that we can learn that without lying. This is the folly when our base is off. Jesus knew that people's perspectives differed. He knew that people operated from different motives. He never lied. It wasn't part of his mental development, and it's not a necessary part of our mental development. The problem is, is that when research, researchers get a hold of such information, when they're incapable of acknowledging scriptural truth, they lose a category of human behavior that the Bible calls sin. Lying, says Jesus, is immoral. It breaks the law of God. It violates His sovereign authority wherever it is used. And this sin is deeply ingrained in a world that is in love with self. It's not just four-year-olds that know how to lie. In 2002, the University of Massachusetts conducted a study showing that if we include shading the truth, it's not just a bold lie, but shading the truth, not really letting you know what the truth is through my speech. They found that 60% of adults cannot hold a 10-minute conversation without lying. Jesus' call is countercultural. It is transformative to the heart of human beings, a heart orientation towards self-promotion, self-protection, and self-achievement is willing to manipulate the truth. It manipulates the truth in oath-taking or in any number of other reasons so as to what? To save face. To shift the blame. We lie to avoid confrontation, to secure resources, to protect our feelings, to please people, to fool authorities, to evade detection, and to make ourselves just feel better. Lying becomes a tool in our hands to promote ourselves. Jesus' instruction 
Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Speak the truth at all times. Now when he says, do not take an oath at all, verse 34, how do we interpret that? How do we understand that? Is Jesus prohibiting every form of oath taking? So is this saying, no follower of Christ could possibly be the President of the United States because he's got to take an oath of office? Is Jesus saying that we can never swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth in a a court of law? There are many Anabaptists, there are Jehovah's Witnesses and others who have said that is exactly what he is saying. We should never take an oath. And if called to do so within a court of law, we should say something else. It may even be an opportunity to witness to our following of Christ and his call that we not take oaths. With respect to those who interpret it that way, thankful for their desire to obey the word on that point, I don't believe that's Jesus' point at all. Jesus is unveiling larger principles here, but does not spend time working out the nuances. And as we work out those nuances, we will not do so on the screen, because I just realized I don't have my thing. (laughs) We don't have anything up there, do we? One more forgetful moment for Dan Miller. Forgive me, we'll just turn the old way into cross-references. I have a number of them, so work with me here. I'll wake you up if nothing else. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. So as Jesus says, don't ever take an oath, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17 has to be brought into play here to consider a passage such as this. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17 So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The hope set before us is tied here to the oath that God has taken. The God who cannot lie. This point simply being that clearly taking an oath is not of itself immoral. Thank you. I assume that means that we're able to use it. I do have a few here. Maybe not. Now, if you get it there, Andrew, go ahead with it, but otherwise we'll just keep turning. This is particularly the case, I think, that an oath is not intrinsically wrong. And this is, thank you, this is particularly the case when the oath is issued in a formal, legal, or covenantal context, such as we have here in Hebrews 6. In fact, refusing to take an oath in a legal setting may actually solicit the very suspicion about one's integrity that Jesus is seeking to eliminate. There is a significant difference between taking an oath solicited by a court of law and an oath one devises in personal conversation. I think in the life of Christ, we may have really an ideal example of this. In His trial, on the night of His betrayal, before His execution, we read this in Matthew 26. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. 
I want you to take an oath, he's saying. Tell us if you are Messiah, if you are the Son of God. Notice how Jesus replies. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Or another way of saying it is, that is the case. But I tell you from now on, and here is his confession, I will, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I am Messiah. You notice here that Jesus does not say, I will not take an oath. I will not confirm that you have provided an oath for me. But he takes it and he goes with it. He's not initiating it as such here, but he is swearing on oath that he is Messiah. So again, if taking an oath in and of itself is evil at all times, if Jesus speaks here in Matthew 5, absolutely we have some conflicts with this passage. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, I call God to witness against me. That's an oath. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. I mean, think of what's going on here. We've got to be careful in applying this, I think, in our life. But they're saying, you didn't come to visit us. You said you would. You break your word. He said, I call God the witness. It was to spare you that I didn't come. So, as we think on these illustrations, the followers of Jesus Christ Do not lie or deceive in order to serve self. That, I think, is the larger point. Not specifically when an oath is possible or not. And many would ridicule and say, well, can you read the text? Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. And now you're explaining why it's possible to take an oath in certain situations. But I would defend that position saying we've got to understand what Jesus is saying. He's not covering every nuance. He's not considering every situation. He is talking about a heart attitude that uses oaths to deceive people. And I think that's what he's driving at. When we speak the truth, we speak as Christ son or daughter. We speak the truth. We say yes, and we mean yes. We say no, and we mean no. We're not in control of the universe. Sometimes in our humanity, we cannot fulfill a promise. But we must not speak or deceive to shade the truth in order to gain advantage for self. Now someone certainly among us is saying, this is just not a big deal. How do you make this big deal over telling the truth? I usually tell the truth, and when, but when I don't, nobody gets hurt. Uh, white lies, shading the truth a little bit, a lie here and there is not that big of a deal. If I speak to you and you're thinking along those lines, I would really encourage you to stop and to think carefully about what your heart is saying. What you are saying is that God is not your judge. Or what you are saying is that God has a sliding standard that's going to catch you in His grace but not hold you to an absolute standard of purity and truth-telling. What you are saying is delusional. 
It's delusional as Scripture bears out in numerous ways. If you were saying a moment ago, lying is not that big of a deal, nobody gets hurt, it's okay. I ask you to consider Revelation 21, where the word says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. And all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So if you say, I lie now and then, it's not a big deal, I hope that you can at least today gain this knowledge. God disagrees. And He disagrees because He is a standard of absolute truth. And entering into his presence, as with these others who are characterized by these sins, God cannot permit a liar into his presence. His purity will not allow it. Since he cannot lie, since there is no untruth in him, he cannot permit ultimately to accept in his presence a liar. And that verse, let me add, does not simply condemn you as you excuse lying. It condemns every one of us, all of whom have lied. It is a big deal. What the Scriptures mean to say is that we fall short of the standard that God requires. But we're gathered here with attention to God's Word, with joy in our songs and in our thoughts with one another because there is in this world good news. And that good news is not the degree of truth that you speak is what God will judge, but the truth is this, the veracity of God's promises to us in Christ is our righteousness. It's not me speaking the truth that will earn the favor of God because I can't do it. I won't do it. What was in me at two years, I think I was among the, two, the 20% at two years of age. What was in me certainly at four years of age, I know I was in the 90%. And what's in me now as I analyze my speech and think about where I shade the truth and where I don't speak what is right, it's not in me and it's not in you to be free of lying. But it is in Christ and this is why we come to rejoice. This is why we gather, not because we are truth-tellers by nature, but because we're not. And Christ loves sinners. Those listed in Revelation 21 who will not enter the kingdom of God, those very sins Christ died to cover. He died to pay that penalty and so in this context, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, think of Him dying there and suffering the eternal judgment for your lies. Paying the price there as a truth teller for those that are not. Rising from the dead to give us a new heart that longs to conform every word to the truth. That is willing to die to self 
and to allow self to be harmed out of love for the truth. If Christ has remade a heart, if He's given you a new heart, if He is changing you by His Spirit, you value the truth more than you value self-protection and promotion. How convicting it is, how far we need to move, but thankfully our righteousness is in Christ, crucified and risen, who forgives liars and brings them into His kingdom. Turn from lying. Turn from it as a way of promoting yourself, protecting yourself, achieving self-goals. And embrace Christ the way, the truth, and the life. Do not manipulate the truth for selfish advantage. He goes on in verse 38 and says, do not exact strict justice for selfish advantage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Right when you wish Jesus would leave you alone, after he's convicted you about lying, he just keeps right on going. This isn't working for us as self-promoting, protecting people. Do not exact strict justice for selfish advantage. Verse 38, they have heard, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This is indeed an old covenant standard. The Latin phrase lex talionis is often repeated as this law is given. It means the law of retaliation. But the point, of course, is not that the Old Covenant was commending retaliation. The point was this. How should someone be punished who violates the welfare of another person? This law assured fair and equitable punishment. So there's a dispute between a husband and wife in their home. It gets physical and the man breaks her finger. Can the society take him out of the home and amputate his leg in punishment. No. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I, there was a, a great deal of variation and conversation about it. Some things were uh, made into monetary penalties. But the context was to make sure that the crime was matched by the punishment. The punishment fit the crime and was not abusive. So far, so good on some level. But in this context, the Jews used this law to even every score with anyone who wronged them personally. So they took the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle and said, I've been wronged in this way. I will take the sword of justice and I'll mark out my territory and make sure that no one ever crosses me again this way by responding in kind. Two problems. One, justice was meant to be administered by the authorities, but it had become a sword in the hand of individuals who exacted justice every time someone crossed them and blamed the Bible for it. 
Under this law, insults were responded to with insults. Injury gave one the right to injure in kind. Even requests for help were seen as injustices that could be resisted in obedience to the law. That's problem one. Problem two with their viewpoint was that justice served as a cover for retaliation. You wrong me, and I have the freedom to wrong you back. It's a law by which many in our day live. If you don't respond that way, people are going to walk all over you. They're going to be abusive to you. So you have to protect you. And if they've wronged me in this way, I have the right to wrong them back. Verse 39, Jesus rewrites this. He said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. He fulfills it in his teaching. What God intends is to be fair and just with those who commit crimes against others in their punishment. But Jesus knows that the point is much deeper. Don't resist the one who is evil. So when people wrong us, our natural self-orientation is to retaliate, to protect ourselves with a sort of justice. He gives four examples to explain how we should not do that. We'll come back to what he means by don't resist the one who is evil. But notice his four examples. Verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. So Jesus is picturing here, every commentator that I read agrees with this idea, that he's picturing here a right-handed slap, which is going to say, that goes on the left cheek, right? No, not if you go backhand. A backhanded slap to the right cheek was in the rabbinical writings one of the most provocative things you could do. It was belittling, it was insulting. If someone insults you by giving you a backhand across the right cheek, turn to them the left. Don't resist it. Now how do we apply that principle? There are those who would apply it as an absolute word from Christ. Again, in the consistency of their interpretation, no oath should ever be stated. And in the consistency here of that interpretation, Jesus is saying no evil should ever be resisted in any way, shape, or form. So that's applied, some would apply that just on the personal level. Some would go to a second level and say there should be no police force, there should be no courts of law, there should be no jails. What Jesus is saying is remake the world by not resisting evil. And some would go to the third level, the deepest level, which say, says that it applies to nations. They promote from this passage pacifism. There should be no war, there should be no soldiers. That's what Jesus is teaching. In disagreement with that approach, I think this principle must be applied with a whole Bible interpretation. There are those that like to land in the Sermon on the Mount and never move from the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a good idea. God ordains police, magistrates, and armies. This is clear in Scripture. I appreciate the willingness of some to so honor the words of Scripture that they ask about implications later. But in this place, we must ask the implications, if not considered, really prove the position to be ridiculous. 
Is Jesus telling us that an army raping, pillaging, destroying, and killing life indiscriminately is to be left alone? That somehow kindness will stop that army? I don't think so. I think the problem is that many Anabaptists and Quakers and left-leaning evangelicals today, in fact, you can pick up commentaries today where uh, gospel-believing, left-leaning, but gospel-believing people will say, this is what Jesus is saying to us. There should be no armies. There should be no resistance. We should be entirely pacifists. The problem, I think, with their thinking is, again, they're missing what Christ is saying. In fact, they are treating this verse like the Pharisees treated the law, making it a rigid matter of strict compliance without nuance. I think his point is simply when we are wronged, when we are insulted, we do not need to insist on justice. Loving our enemies means being willing to suffer wrong at their hands as if this is hard be ready, as if they were friends. I don't like that. And your heart doesn't either, naturally. So, back to that point in a moment. Are we to be embarrassed when someone uses force to bring about the correction of a wrongdoer? I don't think that's Jesus' view. Or to ask it a different way, Beth and I had a friend. um, She was sitting on a bus bench in North Minneapolis with her purse waiting for a bus, and behind her, a man snatched her purse and began to run away with it. But the the cord, what's it called? The strap, the strap of the purse (laughs) is... It got caught on her wrist, and so he couldn't pull it away fully. Well, this friend was rather sizable, and she was rather courageous. And she took the purse with the strap now wrapped firmly around her wrist and beat the guy in the head with her purse until he ran away. Now, is that not a great story? This really happened. Are we wrong to laugh? The joy that maybe you got out of that story, is that wrong? Is she breaking Jesus' word that we should never resist anyone who is evil? I don't think so. I think we should laugh. I think we should enjoy it. I think we should say that guy got exactly what he deserved. He took the purse and he got beat with it. And humiliated, which is why we can laugh. Because he didn't get killed. I don't think Jesus would be upset with that story. I think he's saying that he's, rather, that he's speaking generally here with every intention that we fill in the right application. He is saying this when you are insulted, you do not need to think in terms of justice and retaliation, you can love your neighbor. It gets hard when we apply it. But you love your children. The little kids that we're bringing into this church, what a wonder. 
but they keep parents up at night. And we endure it. We thank God for it. We just get up, stumble into that room, and help the kid out and pray that they go back to sleep. But we don't hate them. How do you respond when your neighbor keeps you up at night? Now, understanding there's a difference. Understanding there's the rule of law. But also understanding we can begin to retaliate. We can begin to hate. We can begin to despise that neighbor. What Jesus is saying is you can treat the neighbor like you treat your child. Grace, patience, turn the other cheek. Second illustration, verse 40, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. They had two long robes, one an inner robe that you could sue and take from somebody. The outer robe you couldn't keep for more than a day in a lawsuit because it was what they used for a blanket at night. You didn't have to give them your outer cloak, but you could. And again, I think in terms of a home, one of my sons asked, can I wear, Dad, can I wear one of your winter coats? And I want to go outside in the snow and we're going to go sledding with some friends. Can I, can I borrow your coat? I don't have a good coat with me home right now. Is that all right? What do I say? It's my coat. You can't have my coat. Not touching. I say, sure. I'm happy to give my coat to my son. And what I might say as he's going out the door, do you have a hat and gloves? I've got a hat and gloves too. I, I, you know, take these. That keeps you warm, it's okay. I mean, give them back. I want to see them again, but you see that? I took my coat. I can have my hat and gloves as well. Treat your enemies like that. Well, that doesn't come easily. They take something from you that you think is yours. They're seeking to exact from you what they want, and you give them more. Third example, verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Undoubtedly, in the context of conscription, where troops, Roman troops, could take a civilian and say, I want you to carry this. Probably putting it in an illustration that we might understand a little bit better. Imagine that there's a, a time of, of, of martial law in the U.S. You pull up to a light it's red, and a police officer or an army officer comes walking across the intersection, opens up your car door and says, scoot over, I'm taking your car. You have an appointment, you're going somewhere, you're a little bit on the late side, and now you've got to drive all the way to St. Paul. Drop the officer off and then you can come back. How would you respond to a friend that said, I need a ride to St. Paul, and you're going there anyway, and you say, uh, sure, let me take you up there. You get out and you say, do you have a ride home? When you go up with that officer that's taken your car and you're in St. Paul and you're pretty ticked about the fact that you've had to drive up there for this person, say to him, can I take you home? Treat that enemy like he's a friend. Example four. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, in the absolutist interpretation, there are those who say this means anybody who asks you for money, give it to them. you got about two days. <laughs> It'll all be over. I mean, how do we apply this to uh, 
sales call on the telephone. They're asking us for money. Do we give that to them? The um, political party that calls, do we give them what they're asking for? The panhandler on the street, do we give them what they're asking for? If somebody says, take all your clothes off, are we to strip down to nudity in public because they've asked Give to the one who begs of you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How far do we take this? Our kids ask for a new car. Do we put this in uh, literally and say, well, they've asked for it, I give it to them? Again, I think the idea is that this is a principle. As Hughes puts it, the Lord wants his followers to reject a tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude that says, this is mine and I'll never share it. Since it's mine, I will insist that it remains mine. This is what justice demands. So Jesus calls us here to love our enemies by treating them as we would treat a friend. He calls us to hold loosely to our possessions and to respond graciously to those who would invade our space and grab our resources. And orientation, if we're oriented towards self-promotion, self-protection, and self-achievement... We're going to demand justice. We're going to demand fairness. We're going to stand our ground against people who might push us around. We must police the borders of our own lives that no one take advantage. But loving an antagonist as if that antagonist is a friend is a crucial principle of living life for the glory of Christ. We're not going to care about the boundary we're going to care about the person. And there are times people asking us for something should not be, it should not be given because we're not loving them to give it to them. But we're not going to withhold things from others and maintain the boundary that no one pushes me around. That thinking goes out the window. Love others as you love yourselves. He's saying, do not be greedy, possessive, self-protective, or demanding of justice when others seek to insult you or take advantage of you. Now, somebody might say, treating my enemies this way, treating people this way, they're going to take advantage of me. I don't want to live like this. What's the foundation of it? Jesus just grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, knock it off, get with the program, do what I'm asking you to do. No, it's Jesus dying on the cross in the place of his enemies, of which I was one. That's the foundation of it. That's the motivation for it. Ultimately, Jesus isn't dead in the ser- at the time of the Sermon on the Mount, of course, in that context. But this is where it is leading. Christ died for you while you were His enemy. If you really grasp that truth, then when enemies push you and they want to get something out of you and you have to sell- set self aside, you look to Christ And you say, by His grace, I can do that. By His grace, I don't have to hold up the wall and fight the enemy and make sure no one pushes me around because Jesus died when I was His enemy. He didn't just give me some more clothing. He took my place and He died. 
He didn't just go one mile. He went infinitely far and paid my sin for eternity. When I'm responding at the heart of my being to this message of Jesus crucified and risen, when I realize that He did this for me when I was His enemy, I will treat my enemies differently. Self will be set aside and away from the center of who I am, and Christ will be at the center. And when Jesus is at the center, He's the one who died for His enemies. He's the one who is in the business of saving liars, oath-breakers, and selfish people. And so, longing to reflect His grace and His goodness to us, I relate to others who are selfish and lost in their sin. I relate to them in grace. And they're going to ask, why do you not protect yourself? That soldier that I drive up to St. Paul expects me to go peeling out of there and leave him to find someone else to take him home. When I say to him, may I drive you back home when you're done with your business, he's going to ask, why on earth would you do that? This is where Jesus is driving us. To bring people to ask, why would you be so unself-protective and unself-promoting? And then we point to Christ, our Savior who died for His enemies. Let's pray. Lord, we need Your aid for we know that we fall very far short of Your glory. We need Your forgiving grace, and I pray that You'd pour it out upon this assembly today, and particularly upon anyone who is separated from Christ and in their sin, that they would come to a place of union with Him through trust in His death and resurrection. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we come to You poor in spirit, and we ask that you would stabilize us and strengthen us and enable us to set self aside and to serve Christ crucified and risen as a witness to those, as a witness of him who loved his enemies. May we so love ours. And may we speak the truth in love. Through Christ we pray. Amen.